according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to Matthew chapter 12 as we get started this morning. Matthew 12, although we will be bringing in the parallel text from Mark 3 and Luke 8. But we'll be basically sticking with Matthew 12 as our basic text. Episode 26 in the Galilean ministry, 26 out of 56. Halfway through, or more than halfway through, actually, the uh, time period that really focuses on the uh, the bulk of his earthly ministry. Because by the time he gets through with the Galilean ministry and he moves on to the Feast of Tabernacles, he's within six months of the cross. So for a ministry of the last three and a half years, the majority of which is the Galilean ministry, which is the time period that we've been dealing with now for quite some time. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together. We do ask for your hand and blessing upon us, the setting aside of distractions, uh, the hedging us about, Father, as there uh, could perhaps be some who would want to come in here and stir up trouble and stop the word of God from being taught. Father, I pray that you would reward the volition of those believers that are hungry for truth. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Last week, we were uh, a bit scatterbrained by virtue of uh, landing at past midnight and then trying to get up and do a Bible class. So I don't know if any of it made any sense. If not, we'll try to follow up on it here this morning and tie together maybe what was confusing last week. There's a very short section here as I read from verses 46 through 50. Just five verses here. It would help if I was in the right gospel. This is a section that I think is widely overlooked. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that's where the chapter ends. And when we move on to chapter 13, where we've changed topics entirely, and it goes on to the, the uh, as you see, the first part of chapter 13, that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea and so forth. And he starts to give them all these great parables that we're going to get into here in chapter 13. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, that is the next episode. Episode 27 is the famous parable. So we're going to have to deal with the Matthew 13 parables as soon as we wrap up this event here. But we wish we could have maybe uh, a verse 51 in chapter 12 to let us know uh, with a certainty that this is not a, a negative event, that the Lord is not blowing off his earthly responsibilities. He's not rejecting his mother here. And I think the two snares are, of course, the Roman Catholics who want to exalt Mary and have for 1,500, 1,800 years now, they, uh, they teach this passage one particular way, of course, because to them, Mary is the queen of heaven and she's just everything imaginable. The Protestants, though, threw the baby out with the bathwater, went overboard the other direction to say, no, uh, Jesus here is just basically dissing his mother. He's telling Mary, take a hike. I'm in ministry. I'm teaching the word of God and so forth. And I think that both approaches actually damage the text because there's no indication of that. It, uh, when it is reported to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. This statement here is not dismissive when he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's not uh, divorcing himself from his earthly family and he's not rejecting Mary and those siblings in any respect. But he's using the opportunity to teach a principle. And I hope that uh, that, that much at least is clear. This is the first glimpse and I've done some more searching on it. I still can't find anything in between the uh, turning the water to wine in John chapter 2 where he relocates them to Capernaum and this episode here. So if there's, a, if there's an appearance of Mary between those two episodes, uh, I have still not found it. So I'm feeling fairly safe in saying that this episode features the first glimpse of Jesus' human mother since the Lord relocated her and her ch other children to Capernaum just after the Cana wedding. And that's our reference from John 2 
and verse 12. There are other instances where uh, kinsmen, particular kinsmen, are speaking to him or about him. They're saying that he's lost his senses or he's out of his mind, things like that. Uh, but it does not state that those kinsmen, that among those kinsmen are Mary or even his uh, immediate half-brothers. Secondly, we don't know what they wanted. And uh, it's not important. If it was important, the text would have told us. It doesn't say they wanted to speak to him about such and such. It doesn't say that they were seeking to speak to him uh, concerning the hypostatic union or concerning his death on the cross or concerning the dispensational plan of the program of the ages for the kingdom of Israel. It doesn't say. It could have been uh, they wanted to speak to him because uh, they had an invitation to dinner that night or something else was going on or it was a sister's birthday party or who knows. It could have been something as mundane and boring as that. Any number of trivial details that families have to deal with on a daily basis. The point is, is it does not matter. It's not a part of the text and has no bearing on the doctrine that we would teach out of this context. Point three, there's some subpoints to that. I'm going to skip by. Point three, who exactly were these brothers? Jesus had four brothers and plural sisters. And this is where we ran out of time. We got as far as James and we got three other brothers to deal with and some other uh, historical studies to look at. And then we can uh, and then we can proceed beyond that. Just reminded myself of something I had intended to do before this morning. Oh well, didn't didn't get done. All right, four other brothers or four brothers and plural sisters. We don't know how many, but when you read the text in Matthew 13, look over one chapter, verses 55 through 56. This is on his second return to Nazareth following his baptism. Uh, he may have been back to Nazareth any number of times, but when he went to the baptizer to begin his public ministry, when the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove, he uh, was, was an ordained, anointed, spirit-filled, spirit-indulled prophet from that point forward. And in the ministry, as we would call it with today's vocabulary, and from the point of time he was in the ministry, we only have two uh, recorded occasions where he does return back to Nazareth. Both times are very hostile. And uh, the, we've already covered one already previous to this. And the second one here is in Matthew 13. And when uh, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man, that's part of their problem, where did this man get all this teaching? In other words, uh, his wisdom and these miraculous powers. Is this not the carpenter's son? See, and the problem is in his hometown where he grew up, there's this uh, terrible lack of objectivity because they're too familiar with him. They've known him for years and all the rest. And uh, not that he himself was ever any trouble. They'd, you know, there's no skeletons in his closet where they can drag him out and accuse him of some, you know, teenage indiscretion or anything like that. But his brothers probably had a whole long list of stuff and, and the rest of his family and everything else going on. And, and uh, the, the fact being is that they knew his mother and uh, his father and his siblings. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not, and uh, the parallel in Mark even calls him the carpenter. So his father was a carpenter, he was a carpenter. His mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Notice there's no mention of a father here other than the fact that he's the carpenter's son. Obviously, Joseph has been with, with uh, I almost said with the Lord. He's not, the Lord's here. Joseph is in Abraham's bosom. Uh, and the Lord is here. And anyway, the reference to his mother, his brothers and his sisters, this is the plain language of the text. Uh, the four are named James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. And then the sisters, they're not named, but there are more than one. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Now, I would say that the all demands minimum of three sisters, not just two. Or they could have said, are they not both with us? Because the mother and the brothers are not with them. The, the preposition with us only references the sisters from verse 56. Mary and the brothers are not with the uh, people in Nazareth. They are in Capernaum. But the sisters are all with us. So however many sisters there were, there were plural and there were at least three because it's all, not both. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. We don't know who the girls are, don't know their names, don't know who they married. We just uh, have the little clues that we have there in verse 56. Now, uh, this is another text where the uh, Catholics take issue with it because they've got this doctrine that they have to defend, the perpetual 
virginity and sinlessness of Mary in every respect. And so they come up with all kinds of reasons for who these people are that just do damage to the plain language of the fact that he had a mother and he had brothers and he had sisters. And so I think we're solid on this. The evidence from Matthew 125 that uh, Joseph only kept her a virgin until the birth of, of Jesus. Uh, so, uh, secondly, the evidence of Luke 2.7 where Jesus is called her firstborn son. The term firstborn indicates that there's more after that. And um, that these brothers were not even saved until after the resurrection. That's where we spent most of our time last week. Looking at their, their unbelief in John 7 and then contrasting that with their belief in Acts chapter 1. How that they uh, became apostles during the dispensation of the church. And the text for that, I think, is convicting, and we'll see more on that here on James this morning. But Matthew 28.10 and 1 Corinthians 9.5, indicating the apostolic status of these brothers. Now that they are saved as church-age believers, the uh, gift and calling that they are called to in the church age is that of an apostle. Now under D, E, F, and G, we're going to break down each of these boys, starting with Joseph, uh, with James, and um, sub-points for this. That he was a pillar in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, the twelve were commanded, starting in Jerusalem and then Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth, the twelve were sent out. And so when an apostle is selected to head the church at Jerusalem, it's not one of the twelve who were sent out, supposedly, to the uttermost parts of the earth, but it was James. It was an apostle not of the twelve who uh, took on or was given the headship over believers in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. Galatians 2.9, Acts 12, Acts 15, all of those passages indicating that it was not Peter, and it was not John, but it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was head of the Jerusalem church. Keeping in mind that when we're dealing with the apostolic times, it's not as we don't have the same format we have today, where you have a pastor and you have deacons and you have local churches. Back then you had apostles that were still on the scene. You had the uh, prophets who were still on the scene, New Testament church age prophets. And the apostles and prophets were the foundational stage of the church. They were there to build the foundation to reveal the New Testament, to reveal the, the, the mystery doctrine of the church. And as such, they are all referred to as elders, whether they were an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, teacher, all of those gifts were termed elder there in the early church as the, as, uh, the distinction between elders and deacons uh, uh, was the format that they had. And we have any fuzziness on that. Hopefully we can deal with that today because we don't have any more apostles and prophets, but we still do have the term elder as a uh, maturity status within the local church. And I don't want to get confused between gifts ministries and offices and maturity statuses and that's what hopefully we're going to make very clear as we go through it in first corinthians 12 where we understand that gifts are gifts offices are offices and maturity statuses are maturity statuses and and there's infinite variety between those three and hopefully we'll be uh we'll be solid on that so James clearly had the headship, and we spent the time last week to look at Acts 15, to see the order of the speeches, to see that it was not Peter that gave the final word, but it was actually James that gave the final word. And when the letters get written and they go to different churches outside of Jerusalem, they're coming from the authority of, uh, of James. Uh, what else do we know about James? Well, we have the explicit statements that he is an apostle in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and Galatians 1, 19. And that is, again, plain language of the text. We uh, don't want to dodge it. We don't want to duck it. We don't want to act like it's not there. And, and the best part we have is dispensationalists and as, as literal interpretationists, we don't have to hide from any Bible text. You read it, that's what it says, fine. I believe it. The Bible says so, I believe it. So uh, he was called as an apostle. And the only people that have trouble with that, beyond the Catholics who don't want the siblings around, are the um, there's another crowd that wants to limit the apostles only to the 12 and want to reject that Matthias is legitimate, that Paul was number 12. Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, is the one who replaced Judas Iscariot. And so they're the only 12. And they are vehement about James or Jude or Barnabas or anybody else being considered as an apostle. So um, you may not have encountered a whole lot of that in uh, in your circles or among your associates but believe me they're out there and they are vehement and typically they get that way because they're 
they're really promoting Paul more than anything else. They're, they're Paulicans in, uh, in a lot of regards. Finally, the last thing we know about James is that he was the author of the book of James, and uh, that's what we've been studying on Sunday night. And, and there's no, uh, uh, among conservative dispensationalists, I don't think there's much uh, disagreement about that. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author of the book of James. All right, we've got three other brothers. We also have a brother named Joseph. Uh, last thing I'll say on this, the difference between Yaakobas and Yaakov from the Hebrew the actual English name James comes from the Hebrew name Jacob, and they're the same name. Um, it just we te- our Bibles tend to use Jacob in the Old Testament, and they tend to use James in the New Testament, unless it's a passage in the New Testament that's talking about the Old Testament Jacob. Then they'll call him Jacob, but but it's the same name. It's like Joshua and Jesus. All right, Joshua's in the Old Testament fought the Battle of Jericho and the you know succeeded Moses. Jesus is the is the Yeshua, the, is the New Testament name. So I think we're we're solid on that. But some people get weird and and they blame you know the the translators were trying to appease King James and so they they turned this into James. Um, that's it's urban legend and, and a bunch of garbage really. It is the same name and has nothing to do with that uh, Anglican Bible of the 17th century. Okay. So Joseph. We have, uh, unfortunately, they might do us a favor if they were to do the same thing with these other uh, names that they did with Jacob. In other words, have a consistent uh, name in the Old Testament and a consistent name in the New Testament. But with Joseph, they use the same one. They use Joseph both uh, in Hebrew and in Greek. So whenever you talk about Joseph, you have to define, well, is this the Old Testament Joseph that was thrown in a pit and rose to Pharaoh's throne? Or was this the New Testament Joseph that married the virgin and and was the adopted father of Jesus? Uh, And then he had a son named Joseph Jr., we suppose, uh, one of Jesus's younger half-brothers. So the English name Joseph, the Greek Yosef, and the Hebrew Yosef, named for his father, Obviously, Joseph and Mary, the parents there. Uh, but what else do we know about them? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. Although, believe me, there is no end to the speculation that he was the same Joseph that was also called Justice here in Acts 1 and verse 23. So let's look at that. And other than the fact that they had the name Joseph, all the rest is speculation. Consider how common these names were. The name Jacob, for example, is a very common name. Their, their very forefather, Israel, was Jacob. And how many Jacobs were there after that? Countless. How many Josephs were there? Well, Joseph was a common name. It was a very popular name. There's several of them in the, in the line of Christ in other uh, genealogical lists. Well, Acts chapter 1, uh, they put forward two candidates, and he's the one that's not Matthias. He's the one that's not selected. So uh, we read here, uh, Peter says, you know what, we've got a problem. We're supposed to be the 12. We're missing one because of Judas's treason. And so it is necessary that uh, we replace him. And what they do is then they put forward two men in verse 23. Joseph, called Barsabbas who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the eleven apostles. What happened to Judas? I mean, what happened to uh, Joseph here? Called Barsabbas, called Justice. He was not added to the 11. He was not like Matthias. He didn't become apostle of the Lamb number 12. What happened to him? We don't know. We never see him again. He disappears from the book of Acts, from the rest of the New Testament. Okay, And that's not weird. That's pretty normal. It's the same thing with Doubting Thomas. It's the same thing with Simon the Zealous. the same thing with James the Less. It's the same thing with the uh, Thaddeus. These other disciples that, that aren't as well known as Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the other ones disappear they don't even appear in the book of acts after these first couple of chapters here they're presumably gone they've left jerusalem they're fulfilling their ministries as uh, they were commanded to do so uh, all the speculation that takes this particular joseph and says there see he's that's that's him 
is is just as ludicrous as in our next example. Uh, we're going to take a look at Simon to say, ooh, ooh, maybe he was Simon the magician from uh, from Acts. Just because why? Well, because his name is Simon. Well, yeah, but you know how many there were. You know how common that name was. So we could say Joseph. Um, uh, he later became dictator of the Soviet Union because his name was Joseph. Obviously, he went on to become Joseph Stalin. Does that make any sense? No. So I think a lot of these people that are just craving for traditions and, and so forth are uh, a bit weak in their assumptions. All right, the next one is Judas. Judas. How did Judas become such a common name? <laughs> right? I mean, you think with Iscariot, what a villain. But see, Judas is the New Testament Judah from the Old Testament. And Judah was the dominant tribe. Judah was the tribe of the, of the king. Judah was the tribe of, of a King David. Judah was the tribe, the ruling tribe of the 12 tribes. That's why Jesus is a lion from the tribe of Judah. We could say if we want to give it a New Testament term, he was a lion from the tribe of Judas. All right? So the English Judas, the Greek Judas, the Hebrew Yehuda, it's all the same name. This is... Uh, I mean, it's a blessing we have a beginning Hebrew class going on now because it really helps us to understand why so many of the Greek terms um, become ad adapted the way they do because even though our New Testament is written in Greek, all but one of our New Testament authors is himself Jewish. Luke is our only Gentile New Testament author. And so from Matthew to Mark to John to Peter to Paul, all these other New Testament authors, they're, they're all Jewish. They're, they're native Hebrew speakers that are writing in Greek to write the Greek New Testament. So, so much of the Greek New Testament is actually flavored by uh, Semitisms and, and, uh, and Hebraic expressions. And it really shows up especially in the proper names. All right, Judas, Judas, Yehuda. Now, author of the book of Jude. Author of the book of Jude. Why do we say that? Well, because when we examine our Judes and our Judases, and there were many, Many, many Judases. But look to the introduction here to the book of Jude after 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, similar language to how James used it. Neither brother would say, oh, by the way, we're the half-brothers of Jesus. But they were bondservants of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Brother of James. And this is the way that these two brothers, half-brothers of, of our Lord, uh, titled themselves in the introductions of their books. So the book of James, the book of Jude, both written by half-brothers of our Lord, both written by believers that were New Testament apostles, that is, apostles in the dispensation of the church. They were not apostles of the Lamb because they weren't even saved during his earthly ministry, but they were apostles in the church age that then wrote particular books of the New Testament. So why don't we have a book of Joseph? Why don't we have a book of Simon? The fourth brother is Simon. What do we know about Simon? Nothing. We know his name. He probably went on to sell life insurance or something. We don't know. <laughs> all right? Well, I believe all four were probably apostles. Well, I know two of them were. Chances are all four of them were. It's just that uh, Joseph and Simon didn't write books of our New Testament. There is... Um, one last thing I'm going to say about these guys. All right, Simon. In uh, Greek, it's Simon, and in Hebrew, it's Shimlon. More of a sh sound in, in front of Shimlon. But this is the tribe of Simeon. How many of these are tribal names? Jacob had 12 sons, and Jacob himself is one of these names. And one of the sons was Joseph, the favored one, the one that received the double blessing. Uh, but then Simeon was another tribe. And Simeon didn't have such a, uh, achievement himself, Simeon the person, and Simeon the tribe didn't have such a, uh, a stellar uh, history. Uh, very quickly became one of the smaller tribes, very quickly became rather insignificant in the, in the northern uh, ten-tribe nation of Israel and so forth. But Simeon, uh, when you stop to consider how Leah named her children, where Reuben, God sees, we don't have very many Reubens, uh, Old Testament or New Testament, but then Simeon, God hears. 
God hears. And this became a very interesting name that became so common that we have literally dozens of Simons or Simeons between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even Peter. Peter's not Peter. Peter's Simeon. He's Simon. And the Lord renamed him Peter, said, on this rock I will build my church and you will be called Peter. But his birth name was Simon. He was Simeon. Countless Simeons, including that magician that we talked about in the book of Acts and all these other Simons or Simeons. And um, Simon the Zealot uh, was one of the other of the twelve. Here's Simon, the half-brother of Jesus. What else do we know about him? Nothing, except it was a very common name. The last thing I'm going to say about these brothers under point H. Now, forget the, the fiction of Da Vinci Code for a minute. Okay, Jesus didn't marry Mary Magdalene. They did not have babies. There are no human descendants of Jesus Christ on the planet. Never have been. He never fathered any earthly children. But these brothers did. These brothers did. Historically, we know they did. And we have record of their descendants. We have record of their writings. There's a term for them that was developed in the early church. Descendants of these brethren were referred to as despasini. D-E-S-P-O-S-Y-N-I. From despot. Think of despot. A despot, we usually think of a despot as a tyrant, right? Well, today, despot has a very negative connotation, but what not so, despos in Greek was not nearly the tyrannical uh, term. And so it is a reference to the Lord. And sune, meaning together with, like synchronize or sympathy, or any of your soon or seen uh, roots. So despasini were the ones that were together with the Lord. They were blood relatives with the Lord by virtue of being Descendants of Mary. Despasini. That's what they were called. Descendants of these brethren were referred to as Despasini in the early church. If you ever read the writings of Hegesippus, H-E-G-E-S-I-P-P-U-S. This is what I was going to have ready for you. I've got this in my software and I just failed to bookmark it and have it up for you this morning. He lived from 110 to 180 A.D. So he lived within a century of the crucifixion. And he wrote about these descendants. Um, we don't have his exact writings, but we have copies of his writings by Eusebius. Eusebius wrote in the 3rd and 4th century. And in his Ecclesiastical History, uh, Volume 3, I think that is Section 20, you have the reference there. Two grandsons of Jude were brought before Emperor Domitian. And... Uh, that's a shame. I, should have, I meant to have that up and ready to read to you because it's kind of an interesting text to read and the defense that they made in terms of their uh, being martyred. I'll see if I can find that for next week. I'll just have it up on the screen for you. Now, what do you suppose happened to these descendants? How do you suppose the response was to the Despasini? Think they could have built a pretty good following? Could have headed up church movements? I mean, we know how schismatic the Corinthians became with, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Peter, I'm a follower of Apollos, and so forth. You imagine these guys could have developed a considerable following. And the fact is that they did. They were gathering a following. Um, and, sadly, some of those... Uh, uh, teachings and some of those uh, sects that started to develop got into some false doctrine, got into some heretical doctrine, but they were following people rather than, than uh, you know, anytime you get wrapped up in a personality cult instead of an actual sound Bible teaching ministry, you're headed for trouble anyway. But they had ministries around Jerusalem, around the uh, Palestine area, and to be honest, uh, Rome didn't like it. Remember, Rome was in the business of trying to build their own church, trying to exalt Peter. And they're centering everything in Rome and making all these other churches submit to Rome. Making Antioch submit. Making uh, Alexandria submit. Making uh, Ephesus submit. Making uh, Byzantium submit. Constantinople. And so while Rome is building this great church of Peter trying to demand allegiance from all these other cities and all these other bishops from all these other churches, that those groups of followers there of the Despasini, uh, they weren't treated well. <laughs> and uh, it's... It's an interesting aspect of church history in that early period when, remember, all of them were illegal. 
They're all trying to grow and, and nurture and add and give the gospel and get people saved, but they're still illegal until Constantine comes along. So um, anyway, it's a fascinating era of church history. They are gone by the time you get uh, to the post-Constantine era. Uh, by that time, Rome is utterly dominant and there is no more reference to Despacini from about the time, oh, probably from about the time of Jerome onward. We have no more reference to the Despacini. All right, the last thing we'll deal with this is point four. Jesus used the circumstances of his earthly family's arrival to teach the principle of our heavenly family. Jesus used the circumstances of his earthly family's arrival to teach the principle of our heavenly family. He is not dismissing Mary here. He's not dismissing his brothers. For all we know, if there was a verse 51 in, in Matthew 12, what it would say is, and Jesus concluded Bible class and went out and had lunch with his family, you know, or whatever. We don't know what they did. We could just assume that we'll pretend there's a verse 51 in there that says Jesus finished Bible class and went out and talked to him, found out what they wanted. Okay, we don't know. But it becomes the opportunity when it's reported to him. Someone said, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. That then becomes the open door opportunity to give an illustration and to teach. See, this is the fatal flaw. All pastors do it and all pastors' wives hate it. Absolutely get livid. Why do you use our family so much in all these stories? Okay. So I'll start using a hypothetical family. It's just normal. That's what you're dealing with. They show up and say, hey, we want to talk to you. Opportunity. Now, who is the heavenly family? Whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God. See, you can't control what family you're born into in terms of your physical birth. No, none of us get to pick our parents. We don't get to pick where we're born. We don't get to pick any of that stuff. But here is a family that you do enter into by virtue of the consequence of the faith that by grace you've exercised. So whoever does the will of God, Mark 3.33, that is whoever does the will of the Father, Matthew 12.50. And how do you do that will? By hearing the word and applying it. That's how you enter the heavenly family. So whoever does the will of God, Whoever does the will of God, if you're listening to the MP3, you don't have advantage of reading the uh, screen, so I'll read it out for you. This is sub point A. Whoever does the will of God, Mark 3.33, that's God the Father, Matthew 12.50, by hearing the word and applying it, Luke 8.21, is a part of our heavenly family. This just kind of blends all three statements from all three texts. Mark 3.33, answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 35 says, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, who does the will of God? I can find a verse that says nobody does. Ah, I can find other verses. Okay. Nobody in ourselves do. However, once we're regenerate, notice this. So whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's Mark 3. should be 35 instead of 33. I think 35 is a better reference on that. And then uh, Matthew 12, 50 specifically highlights the title Father, not just the will of God, but the will of my Father. Mark 12, uh, Matthew 12, 50. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, how do you do this? How do you do the will of God? By hearing the word and applying it. Luke 8, 21. By hearing the word and applying it. So you're not going to do the will of God instinctively. You're not going to do the will of God from your own uh, instigation, your own volition, your own, your own will. It's going to be in response to the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Notice Luke 8, 21. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Who hear the word of God and do it. Intake and application. Hearing and doing. In other words, you've heard the gospel. Not just listened to it, but heard it, 
applied faith, lived it, you're now in this heavenly family. By grace you've been saved through faith. Clearly, this can only apply to believers. John 6, 29. This can only apply to believers. An unbeliever cannot apply the word of God. Think about it. An unbeliever. You say, well, what if he doesn't lie? If an unbeliever tells the truth, isn't he obeying the, the, the will of God that says, thou shalt not lie? Or what if he's faithful to his wife? He's not saved, but he's obeying the command that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Is he obeying the command? Because he's not walking by faith. Don't confuse the external deed with the spiritual reality of what's taking place there. You and I can do those things in, an, in a faith application. An unbeliever can do exactly the same thing or not do exactly the same thing, but it is not a faith application because they're still walking by sight. And I think John 6.29 is, uh, really is a linchpin here that, that cinches this down for us. Where we understand that this is, the context of this is dealing strictly with believers. They want to know, uh, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They weren't responding in faith to the miracle. They were responding in selfishness because they wanted their bellies filled. They said, oh, look at this. Here's a, here's a guy that can feed us every day. He just multiplies loaves and fish. What a great king. Let's make him king. And totally oblivious to the fact that having performed a work of God, having accomplished a sign and a miracle, they should now listen to the content of his message. They don't care about his message. They don't care what he has to say. They just want their bellies filled. And so he tells them, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. He continues to testify to the Father. So verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And here's his answer. This is a wonderful answer because it comes in the context of work. He says, this is the work of God. <laughs> so if you ever come across anybody who thinks that they can be saved by works, you can go to this text and say, okay, you want to be saved by works? Here's the work. It's kind of a trick question to play on words, but Jesus calls it a work. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And, and anybody that's trying to work their way to heaven, it's a great verse to take them to, because you can't. None of us can work our way to heaven. The only work, if you want to call it that, is faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. So this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And uh, then, of course, they're not content with that. They want more miracles. But this is the will of God. This is the work of God. So only believers can be in this family. Only those who believe the, the gospel message are in the family. And that's the thing we got to stop, uh, start to realize is that we are here to edify the family, to build up the body of Christ. You say, oh, well, I can't stand that person. <laughs> then you have an attitude adjustment that needs to be made. Because whatever mental attitude sin you're harboring against your brother is a hindrance to your growth. You've got to orient properly in grace towards your brother. In fact, you've got to do that first. First and foremost, before any growth can possibly take place. So this is the family. This is the family. And the responsibility that we have to our brothers and our sisters and our mothers and our fathers, we're going to talk about that here in a moment as well. Because this is not limited, under point C, this is not limited to any particular dispensation. We call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's true. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But this brethren relationship preceded the church. They were brothers and sisters. They weren't in Christ, but they were brothers and sisters. They weren't royal family, but they were brothers and sisters because they were spiritual family, heavenly family. This is not limited to any particular dispensation. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. Verse 
Verse 9 of Hebrews 2 says, But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Only for a little while. Only for the period of time of His earthly life. 33 years if you want to call it that, or 37 years or up to 40 years depending on when you date His birth. Uh, But whatever it was, it was just for a little while. Lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So born-again believers from Adam and Eve to Abel on to the very last believer and the very last one to ever get saved in the thousandth generation in the fullness of time, every born-again believer, regardless of stewardship, is brethren, is family, a child of the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's true no matter what dispensation. Our dispensation, though, has one extra item on top of that. And we'll show you that as well. Because not every child is an heir. But we are. We are fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. There's a whole lot of children that are legitimate children, but they're not heirs. There's a difference. All right. Jesus delivered this message during the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. Think about it. We're in the Gospels. We're not in the church age. We're in the Gospels. We're in the Old Testament still from stewardship perspective. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? So he's talking about a heavenly family, but he's doing so in an Old Testament context of believers that are saved looking ahead to the coming crucifixion. And so this is not a passage. This is not a church age passage. And the idea about being brothers and sisters, uh, spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters, is not unique to our age. Our very passage of study. You know what I mean when I say that the Gospels are written in the Old Testament. Just because, you know, you've got a title page here, you know, a blank white page that separates Malachi from Matthew, something like this, that says, oh, when you turn this page, now you're in the New Testament. Okay? Don't be confused. Yes, you're in the New Testament portion of the Bible. From that point forward, it's written in Greek. Prior to that, it's written in mostly Hebrew. All right. But the events that take place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 1 are all Old Testament events. They precede the church. And even the terms Old Testament and New Testament are the greatest terms for these two halves anyway. So, but we're stuck with them. What are we going to do with 1,500 years of church history that's called this thing the New Testament? Okay? I'm not going to change that any more than I'm going to change present-day culture. I'm not, going to reinv- I'm not going to reinvigorate the term gay to mean happy and carefree. I'm not going to single-handedly overturn our entire culture's use of the word. I'd like to. But we're just kind of stuck with the term in its common usage. We're stuck with the term New Testament in its common usage. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 1 are Old Testament passages. As the church has not yet been revealed on earth. It is still Israel's stewardship. It is still Israel's stewardship. All right. Secondly, this principle will be important in the dispensation of Israel, age of tribulation. See, once the church is removed, we're back to the dispensation of Israel again. Israel will be his stewards on earth once the church is gone. Only It'll be an entirely new age for them. It's going to be an age of wrath, an age of judgment. We call it the age of tribulation. And this principle will once again become important. The principle of a heavenly family. A passage that's so often mistaught. Matthew 25, verse 40. Sheep and goat judgment here in Matthew 25. 
Now, this whole context from chapter 24 to chapter 25, the Mount Olivet Discourse is looking ahead to things yet to come from the perspective of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. And we, we understand the tribulational context for these events that culminate with the return of him in glory in the second advent. And so you've got virgins and talents and other parables here that are talking about imminency and wrath and the coming king. Um, and the Son of Man is going to come. He's going to come not in humility, but in glory. And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's verse 31. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he's going to be doing this in his own sovereignty, in his own power, in his own glory, and he won't need the United Nations' help to get it done. Maybe one of the best features of the millennial reign is, uh, is, is that fact alone. And the king, and he's going to divide them, sheep and goats. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. And, of course, this is in, in a parable form, but I, I hope we understand the teaching behind it. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Believers will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. If you are born again, if you are regenerate, you will be allowed in. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. This is how we know they're believers. Because they're called the righteous. How do you become righteous? The only way is to receive his righteousness by grace through faith. Because left to ourselves, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one believer can have all our righteousness as like filthy rags. So because they are the righteous, that means that tells us that they are born again. They are regenerate. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? You just got here, Lord. This is your second advent. You've been up in heaven all this time. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. There is the orientation to the heavenly reality of brethren in the context of the tribulation of Israel. See, the evidence for the regenerate during the tribulation will be how they harbor and provide aid to the Jews even while um, Antichrist is bent on their, on their extermination. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So there's the principle there. He, he taught it in our text in Matthew 12. He taught it in the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. The principle is going to come up again in the dispensation of Israel, age of tribulation. How believers stick together in the tribulation. And, and that's just the, the reality of it. There's nothing like persecution to spark a good, healthy revival to spark a, a true faith in powerful ways. And they're going to have to love one another. They're going to have to build one another up. They're going to have to come alongside. They're going to have to encourage one another because they're getting killed for their faith. And those that aren't taking the mark of the beast or they can't buy, they can't sell, they're starving to death, they're being mistreated. And uh, boy, the, the, the walk of faith in the, in the tribulational age is, is going to be, uh, going to be some great stories there. Uh, we a lot of martyrdom there. So it's not a principle that's unique to the church. It is taught in the church. Point three. This principle is taught in the church. But with one important difference, our heavenly family relationship is a royal family. That's the added element beyond the, the reality of a heavenly uh, family or a spiritual family. Is that yes, we enter into that overall family of God, the spiritual family by being regenerate. But beyond that, we have a particular relationship as the bride of Christ. So ours is a royal family. Acts 1, 15 and 16. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. 1 Peter 2, 9. I would encourage you to just consider... Um, we don't we don't focus too much on it because as our nation doesn't uh, acknowledge uh, 
birthright, doesn't acknowledge uh, any royal lineage in any type. In fact, we're prohibited from holding titles and that we can't have a, a, a hereditary princedom or dukedom or anything like that in our, uh, in our nation. Um, but read other nations' history. Read uh, English history. Read French history. Um, forget the French. Read British history, okay? Or read... Uh, and, and start to understand the nature of dynasties, the nature of families, and, and why the, uh, the War of the Roses was so, was so brutal, because they were all related, but it was the way that they were related. See, the House of York and the House of Lancaster, and how each line went back to um, the Plantagenet. It went back to uh, uh, King Henry III, and, and just, do I have that right? It's Richard III, Henry III, all right? And how those families connected and how you could be related to the family and yet not an heir to the throne. And it was only those two lines, the House of York, the House of Lancaster, that had true claims to the throne. Okay, Beaufort claimed it by marriage or as a cousin, but mostly it was the House of York, House of Lancaster. Okay, Beaufort's claim was, was through the House of Lancaster. So... Um, we're all a part of the, of the heavenly family, same as Abraham. Uh, you know, he, he was saved by faith, by uh, uh, the principles of, of faith and entrance into the, into the family. But our branch of the family is royal family. We are the heirs with Christ. Christ is the heir of all things. We are in Christ. Can't stress that enough. Let's look at these. Acts 1, 15 and 16. At this time... Now notice, here's the 12, actually the 11, 12 minus Judas. And these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. What women? Well, those leading women that became ministry supporters of Jesus. And his brother, Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. Stood up in the midst of the Brethren, it is a church age term. We are brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. A gathering of about 120 persons was there and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So this title brethren is throughout the New Testament, particularly in relationship to us in the church. First Timothy five. Instructions from the old man, Paul, to the young man, Timothy, and how to operate in a local church. Particularly, how do you handle it if you're a young pastor? How do you relate to the older men, to the older women, to the younger men, to the younger women? Do not sharp, because the, the relationship is one of family. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. And you're still the authority, you're still the pastor of the flock, but those older men in your church, they are also elders. They, they will submit to your pastoral authority, but... Uh, but have the, uh, the father appeal there on the basis of family to the younger men as brothers, to the older, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity. The last thing you want is a pastor chasing after all the single women in the church. All right. But it's a family relationship. And they're your fathers and your mothers and your brothers and your sisters in all purity as a family relationship. Finally, First Peter two nine. First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race. And that's what's so remarkable. A chosen race. You don't get to choose your race. <laughs> you are whatever race your parents were, or a combination of the two if they're of different races. But you don't get to choose your race. But we are a chosen race. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, barbarian, German, whatever. We have a new race because we're neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. It's a new race. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. See, Israel had a priesthood. We are a priesthood. And it's not just a... And, and Israel, who had a priesthood, came from a non-royal line. Sharp division. The tribe of Judah was royal. The tribe of Levi was priestly. So the idea of a royal priesthood was alien to the Old Testament. They tried to, uh, under the Maccabees, they tried to create one. A royal priesthood under the Maccabees. What it was, was it was Levitical priests who took a throne. 
created their created their Hasmonean dynasty. It was hardly a royal priesthood because the royalty belonged to Judah. And uh, the Jews to this very day look back to the Hasmonean era as their golden age, that wonderful time of the Maccabees. And it was as, as rebellious as you could look for because the royalty belongs in Judah. But we are a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. See, we were not a people. We were whatever we were. We were of all kinds of Gentile peoples or Jewish, if we were Jewish. But now we are a new people. A people that did not previously exist prior to Pentecost. It's a new creation called the church. And we are royal family. Finally, point five. The vital doctrine of heavenly family relationship is an encouragement for both time and eternity. The vital doctrine of heavenly family relationship is an encouragement for both time and eternity. A lot of folks, this is the first real family they've ever known. Because as unbelievers, the earthly family they were born into was a nightmare. They didn't know anything about love, about trust, about uh, acceptance, about intimacy. All they knew was brut- brutality and abuse and, and selfishness. And then a person comes to Christ and they're a part of a family now, in some cases for the very first time ever. And they learn what a loving father is all about. They learn what sacrificial love can truly do. They learn about the blessings of acceptance. And, 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 and you're not living in, in total fear all the time about, uh, about anything. And you're free to be you and, and have acceptance from the other people that, that are a part of this family. What a delight. And in some cases, the first time, the only time people have ever experienced this. But it's not only in time. It's also in eternity. It says, um, oh, okay, let me help if I was in the right gospel. Let me get out of Matthew. Let me go to Mark. Mark chapter 10. Peter had a little bit of a grumbling moment here, kind of like Elijah. Woe is me. Look how much we're suffering. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. You know, Peter lost a pretty good fishing business, very lucrative. He had a fleet. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with, notice, persecutions. All right, you got to take it. It's part of the package, part of the deal. And in the age to come, eternal life. What a delight. What a delight. Well, all of this came out of a Bible class that could have been interrupted. They wanted to talk to him. We don't know what it was about. He used that opportunity to say, wait a minute. There's something you guys got to learn here. There's an opportunity for a heavenly family. And he starts to give them that. All right. Next week we'll come back and we'll move on to Matthew chapter 13. We'll get our first look at the parables of the kingdom. Parables of the kingdom. Another text that is so often mistaught. Now why, when I say, I'm going to close here in prayer, but when I say so often this is mistaught, what do I mean by that? Do I mean that, oh, you know, we're the only church that teaches the Bible and all these other guys are just a bunch of screwed up buffoons? What, what are we saying? No, we're not saying that at all. But what we are saying is that when you have a flawed hermeneutic to begin with, what it's going to reflect itself in is it's going to take passages and cast them in a different light that's not the light they should be cast in. And it is a, it is a failed hermeneutic that replaces Israel with the church, that views, uh, that views the church as a metaphor, that views uh, the kingdom of God as us. All right? The kingdom of God's not here yet. Because the king's not here yet. All right? We are in the kingdom of God, but our kingdom is not of this world. 
And if we're fighting in this world, we've got some adjustments to make, okay? And because there's a fight coming. It's just not here yet. And until the Lord comes, until the Lord brings that fight, um, we're spinning our wheels. So because of that, because the, the, the interpretation model is damaged, their, their treatment of passages is, is misplaced. And Matthew 13 is a prime place for that. So hopefully we'll, we'll describe not only what those parables are about, but we'll describe, is, is, is that the church or is that not the church? And if it's not the church, how do we relate to it? Because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So that'll be next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. We do pray for diligence, Father. And, and we pray that, uh, that we would always be willing to examine every text we look at to ask ourselves, are we treating this text properly? Or are we mis, uh, misapplying the plain sense of, of what you have revealed? Father, uh, thank you for blessing us in the truth. I thank you for making your word clear for choosing the method of revelation that you've chosen, that is, human language in, in uh, written form. And Father, on the basis of your choice to reveal yourself through a human language in written form, we can uh, receive in very clear fashion what you have given to us. And we thank you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.